Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who was called the Prince of Preachers in the 19th century, said, When home is ruled according to God's word, angels might be asked to stay with us, and they would not find themselves out of their element. And I would add to that, where Christ is Lord in the home, angels might be asked to stay with us, and they would find themselves right at home. Now, wouldn't that be something, that our homes would be a place, as Hebrews 13, 2 says it, whereby our hospitality, we have entertained angels without knowing it, angels unaware, and they found themselves at home. But as you know, sadly, in so many homes in our culture today, the home is a place of heartache, it's a place of brokenness, it's even a place of violence. Even among Christian homes, many are not governed by God's word, nor is Christ obeyed as Lord in the home, and the consequences are tragic. The poet William Cowper called the home the only bliss of paradise that has survived the fall. <laughs> or someone has said, you know, too many homes are an outpost of hell instead of a parcel of paradise. The answer to all this is the Holy Spirit of God. The answer is that it's only through the power of the Holy Spirit that we can walk in harmony as husbands and wives, as parents and children. The secret of harmony and unity in the home, even the secret of blessedness, is the fullness of the Spirit of God. It's a power that's from within, it's not pressure from without, that holds the home together. And the fullness of the Spirit is how a home becomes a godly home of influence. So please look once again to the fifth chapter of Ephesians, the 18th verse. Please turn to the 18th verse of Ephesians chapter 5, page 1432. The command in verse 18 of Ephesians chapter 5 is to be filled with the Spirit. The fifth chapter of Ephesians, verse 18, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with with the Spirit. And so the best way to understand what it means to be filled with the Spirit of God is to look at the contrast that Paul gives us here. The contrast with intoxication. Do not be drunk with wine. As is pretty clear, intoxicated, intoxicated people are not in control of their faculties, are they? And therefore they act foolishly. Now wine was a common drink in Paul's day. And Paul is not prohibiting the drinking of wine here, but rather he is condemning intoxication. And he adds the phrase, for that is dissipation. Do not get drunk with wine because that is dissipation. And the, the NIV translates wine, which leads to debauchery. And that's really a pretty good translation. The Greek word that's translated dissipation or debauchery here is Asotia, which carries the idea of an incurable sickness, an incurable sickness. And, and I think for this reason, that's why we really shouldn't bristle when alcoholism is referred to as a disease, because that's the word that's used here. It's a dependency from which people will struggle for a lifetime and will need to fully depend upon the Lord for help during that lifetime. In ancient literature, the word asotia was used of the ruination of a life, a wild and undisciplined life. And the word is used of the life of the harlot in Proverbs 17, 11, who is boisterous and rebellious. Drunkenness leads to ruination, a disorderly life resulting from a lack of self-control. 
Paul is warning believers here not to be drunk with wine, not to be intoxicated, because it leads to an unrestrained, dissolute living, leading only to ruin. But, he says, be filled by or with the Spirit. And so having set up the contrast, Paul gives us the positive exhortation. Being filled with the Spirit is the key to walking in the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit is the key to living by the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit is the key, as he says here in verse 15, to to live a life worthy of our calling in Jesus Christ. The key to the godly relationships that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 5, in marriage between husbands and wives, and then parents and children, and then he even brings it into the workplace with employers and employees, if we put it that way. The key to all of our relationships is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the contrast is not here between the wine and the Spirit of God. The contrast is between a state of being expressed by the two verbs, being drunk or being filled. Now, when we think of filling, we tend to think of terms of whether the glass is half full or half empty. You know, we've heard that, or how full the glass is. The tense of the verb here is to be continually filled by the Spirit. So it's not a matter of whether the Spirit fills us up to this much or up to this much or that much, but to be continually filled. In fact, the word carries the idea of being saturated, permeated. Uh, The Holy Spirit permeates all of who we are. It's not that the person filled with the Spirit has more of the Spirit of God. We are the temple of the living God. The Holy Spirit indwells us. We have all of the Holy Spirit in us already. Being filled with the Spirit means the Holy Spirit has more of you. The Holy Spirit has more of you. Now, if you're as old as me, you might remember fizzy tablets. Anybody remember fizzies? Okay, I see one hand. I see that hand. We talked about slide rules in, uh, in Sunday school this morning. When I was in architecture school, we used a slide rule. But uh, fizzy tablets, they were small colored tablets like an Alka-Seltzer. You would put it in a glass of water, and then it would fizz, and you'd have a carbonated drink that had some flavor to it. Some flavor, Yeah. <laughs> Fizzies would color the water, carbonate it, and give it a little flavor. John MacArthur uses the fizzy as an illustration in his booklet, God's Will is Not Lost. He says, a fizzy is a small tablet used to make a soft drink. It's sort of a flavored Alka-Seltzer. Put it in a glass of water and its flavor releases through the water. This concentrated, compact power pill is no good as long as it sits on the bottom of the glass. It has to release its energy to fill the glass, and then it turns the water into something else. If it's a grape fizzy, you get a glass of grape drink. The flavor and carbonation of the tablet determine the flavor of the water. In a measure, he says, that pictures how the Spirit of God operates in human life. He is the Christian, he is in the Christian all the time as a compact, concentrated, powerful force of divine energy. The question is, has he ever been able to release that power to fill your life so you can become what he is? A Christian not yielded to the Spirit of God does not manifest the Christian life. The Spirit of God has to permeate a life in that a life is to radiate him. We cannot do anything apart from being filled with the Spirit. He says, I have a glove. I say to the glove, play the piano. What does the glove do? Nothing. 
The glove cannot play the piano. But if I put my hand in the glove and pay, play the piano, what happens? Music. If I put my hand in the glove, that glove goes. The glove does not get pious and say, Oh, hand, show me the way to go. <laughs> it does not say anything. It just goes. Spirit-filled people do not stumble and mumble around trying to find out what God wants. They just go. The whole point is that we need the Spirit of God to be released into our lives. This is simply a matter of yielding or deciding to turn one's life over to Him. You know, life is a, a matter of decisions, isn't it? You get up in the morning, you decide what you're going to wear. Next, you decide what you're going to eat for breakfast. If you eat breakfast, I decide I'm not going to eat breakfast before I decide what I'm going to eat breakfast. And it goes on through the day, decision after decision. And the Spirit-filled life is yielding every decision to the control of the Spirit. This is how the Spirit works or fills the Christian's life. To be filled means that a person is completely controlled and stamped by the powers which fill him or her. When filled with wine, the alcohol controls and shapes the person. When filled with the Spirit of God, a person is completely and totally yielded and shaped by the Spirit of God. So what does it mean to be filled by the Spirit? It means that we relinquish control to the Spirit of God. Being filled by the Spirit means that the Spirit of God directs and empowers the believer to live a life that is pleasing to his will. You know, we have to understand what, what it doesn't mean. Because when you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, the Bible says you are indwelt by the Spirit of God. He came to live on the inside of you. The Bible says you were sealed by His Spirit. You were stamped by His Spirit. God says, this is one of mine. Because the Holy Spirit is in you, He is given as a pledge. He is given as a seal unto your redemption and everything that, that uh, God is going to do in you and through you. The Bible says you were baptized with the Spirit into the body of Christ. The same way water baptism, water is the element. We are immersed, we are saturated at salvation in the Spirit of God. And I used to have a friend that would say, oh, I know what it means to be filled with the Spirit. He said it means to be sloshed with the Spirit. <laughs> sloshed with the Spirit of God. Totally given over, controlled by the Spirit of God. And the Bible does not command us to be indwelt, sealed, or baptized by the Spirit. Because if you are in Christ, if you have received Christ, those have already taken place at conversion. The command to the believer is to be filled with the Spirit of God. That is to surrender our will, to surrender our mind, to surrender our body, to surrender our time, our talents, our spiritual gifts, our treasures, every single area of our life to the control of of the Holy Spirit, that we are in contrast, not under the influence uh, of anything else. We want the Spirit of God to be number one in our, our lives. And so Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 19 and through the end of the chapter, Paul goes on to delineate the consequences of being filled with the Spirit. These are the result of being filled with the Spirit. In other words, they are descriptive, not prescriptive. And if we try too hard to make them prescriptive, you know what I mean? Like, if I do this, this, and this, and that, I'm going to be filled with the Spirit, we get the whole wrong idea. 
And so we think as we take for marriage in our family, for example, if I do this, 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 I can be filled with the Spirit. And we forget that these are descriptive. If we are filled with the Spirit of God, this is what it looks like. We don't do these to get filled with the Spirit of God. These happen because we are filled with the Spirit of God. And amazingly, Paul includes marriage, the marriage relationship between husband and wife, as part of the consequences, part of the results of being filled with the Spirit. So these things happen because we are filled with the Spirit. Verse 19 of Ephesians chapter 5, you can imagine. We're going to go through these pretty quickly this morning. When we are filled with the Spirit of God, verse 19, we are speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Being filled with the Spirit affects our speaking. It affects our, our singing. Speaking to one another means that it's, it's not empty talk. A person who is junk with wine can just babble on forever and ever about anything. Have you ever known people like that? They get intoxicated. A person who is full of himself babbles on and on and on about, you know, because they're filled with, with themselves. You know, we used to have a lot of people that stopped by our house, stopped by my dad's shop, and sometimes they were intoxicated, you know, and they would say just the most bizarre and sometimes even hurtful things, you know, and then they would leave and... My dad, as gracious he was, he'd just say, oh, that's just the booze talking. That's just the booze talking. Well, and it is, because they're yielded, yielded over to it. Believers who are filled with the Spirit of God will have a particular content to their speech, to what they say. It says even they, they teach one another. They admonish one another. They encourage with one another what they say. And then as Ephesians 5.19 says, as spirit-filled people, we are speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with our heart to the Lord. All three types of these songs, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, you find in the Old Testament, and they're used to praise songs there. The spirit-filled life produces musical praise to God. The original language says that they are singing and psalming to the Lord. With their hearts. Being filled with the Spirit of God brings this heartfelt praise. Spirit filled believers not only sing with their lips, but they sing with their hearts where the Holy Spirit resides. And as I was thinking about this, I wondered have you ever heard someone whistling a dirge? <laughs> it's incompatible with the instrument, the lips. You can't whistle a dirge. I don't even know if you can whistle in a minor key. For those of you who know music, can you whistle? But you can't whistle a dirge. It's inconsistent with the instrument. And, and so the instrument is our heart, and it sings in praise. And spirit-filled believers not only sing with their lips, but also with their hearts, where the Holy Spirit resides, and this results in giving thanks. Verse 20. Spirit-filled believers are always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Thanksgiving is not an act just because we do something or we give thanks, thanksgiving is an attitude. Uh, we see this contrast maybe at uh, Christmas or birthdays. You need to go thank your aunt for those purple socks with the fuzzy tassels. So what do we do? In obedience, we go, well, thank you. I, those are going to get lost right off the bat. <laughs> Someone has said that gratitude fills the soul with the sunshine of God. 
Gratitude fills the soul with the sunshine of God. I'm going to turn that around in keeping with our text. The sunshine of God or the filling of the Spirit fills our soul with gratitude. Gratitude that overflows into spontaneous praise and the giving of thanks. And then there's another result. This is a result of being filled with the Spirit of God. It's verse 21, submission or being in subjection. We had speaking, we had giving thanks, we had singing. In verse 21, yours might sound like a command, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. That, that's, that's a wrong translation because it's also a participle. Participle begin, or ends with what? I-N-G. Speaking, giving thanks, singing. Literally, it says submitting or subjecting to one another in the fear of Christ. It's a participle. It's still a result. As a result of being filled with the Spirit, we are submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. You know, that's just humility. Spirit-filled people are joyful. Spirit-filled people are thankful. And Spirit-filled people are humble. They submit. What does that mean? Spirit-filled people don't have their own agenda. They don't want to dominate. They don't want to get their way. They eagerly step aside and give ways to others. As we saw last week, submissive people are voluntarily where they are supposed to be, doing what they are supposed to be doing. That's submission. That's how we are to live. And as we do this, this is the way that we are to come alongside the mighty, powerful work of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. He's sanctifying us. We are continuously focusing on the glory of Christ revealed in the Holy Scriptures and the Spirit is conforming us into His image as we continue to be filled with the Spirit. And our lives will be dominated by joy, gratitude, humble submission. And being Spirit-filled is a beautiful thing when we bring it into our marriages. We've got 12 minutes left, and we finally got to marriages. So now you have an idea how fast we're going to go through this. We'll probably run a little over this morning. Because the final result, this is a consequence. This is not how you get filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the result of being filled with the Spirit of God, is that wives are in subjection to their own husbands as to the Lord, and that husbands love their wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Here's what it looks like to be a Spirit-filled wife. Here's what it looks like to be a Spirit-filled husband. These are the results of being filled by the Spirit. And so we're going to... Look at these results briefly for a couple of reasons, or as Solomon might say, you know, there are six things. Yes, seven. You know, he does that several times. You ever notice that in the Proverbs? Well, here's a couple of things, maybe three or four, that, that, that the reason we're going to cover this so quickly, because in just even a few Sundays, we can dig, it would take much more to dig deeply into this. And, and I want to approach these truths of marriage as results or consequences of being filled with the Spirit. So you will know that exactly what it looks like in your own marriage and, and in your relationship with others. And of course, the third reason is that next Sunday, we're going to get into parenting with arrows in the hands of the warrior. So this is really the last time we can cover this for a while. So what does being filled with the Spirit look like for the wife? Or as I put it in the outline, what every woman needs to know about being a Spirit-filled wife. And this is it. In a spirit-filled marriage, the wife submits to her husband. Verse 22, 
We'll start with verse 21. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Be submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. Literally in verse 22. Wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. Unfortunately, submission carries a really bad connotation in our society. And and so we need to remember that the word is not speaking about inferiority. As we saw last week, submit is a military term, hupotasso, that means to rank under, to arrange under. A, a sergeant is not inferior to a captain. They are equal. Hupotasso, to be in submission, means to be where you are supposed to be, doing what you're supposed to be doing. Archers are to be where they're supposed to be, doing what they are supposed to be doing. The heavily armed hoplite in the phalanx is to be where he is supposed to be, doing what he's supposed to be doing. Because authority is necessary to maintain order in the military, otherwise there would be chaos. In the same way, God made the husband and wife relationship with order, with authority, so that it would function properly. And what's interesting in this passage is that Paul gives the wife reasons to submit. You know, when he talks to the husband, he just says this, 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 and this. The woman says, okay, here's all the good reasons for it. And since God is sovereign, he does not have to give us reasons, but he does here. And the first reason he gives is this. The wife must submit to her husband because it is her duty to Jesus Christ. The command, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord, means that this is part of the Christian's wife's duty to Christ. When she submits to her husband, she is submitting also to Christ. Submission really is an obedience issue to God. You know, they used to have it in the wedding ceremonies, and I'm not sure how it got there, but one of the things I did is took it out, and a lot of people, you know, the Bible never commands the wife to obey her husband. It's just not there. Look, look, look. There is a place where it says Sarah obeyed Abraham, but there's no command for that. And, And the word obey, as we see when we get to the kids, just means to come under the hearing you know, of, uh, of that. Uh, submission has nothing to do with the husband's ability to lead or with his IQ or his talents or his abilities. Many wives are much more fit to lead than their husbands in terms of really leading leadership qualifications. The submission of the wife has everything to do with God. The wife must submit to her husband because it is her duty in following Christ. Now it says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, as you would to the Lord. So we must say, you know, the Lord would not ask you to do anything that goes against his word that is wrong or immoral. So the wife, in submitting to her husband, must not do anything that would dishonor God. Did you ever think of that? If the husband asked her, well, just lie on the tax returns, that's good, what? She must refuse. And I know this is a tough one, but if the husband commands the wife, don't go to church, don't read your Bible, don't worship, don't do any of that Christian stuff, she must refuse. Because like the apostles, I will obey God rather than men. Her first priority is to follow God. And following God should ultimately make her a better wife to her husband. And this principle is very important also when it comes to arguments and fighting. How many couples never have a fight? (laughs) The woman is not to be a doormat where the husband always gets his way. 
She is made in the image of God, and her input is valuable and important. Remember, husbands, we are incomplete without our wives, without our helpmates. And a godly husband will recognize and cherish this reality. And secondly, the wife must submit to her husband because he is her head. Verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. So we have two words, head and and Savior. What does it mean by the term head? If we say somebody is a head of a company or an organization, it means that that person is an authority. Similarly, the husband is the head of the wife. But it also means this. That as the head, the husband is responsible and accountable for everything under his charge. Everything. If things are not going well in the marriage and in the family, it's the husband's responsibility. It's the husband's accountability. When Jesus Christ, the Lord of the home, comes and visits the home and things are not going well, he doesn't say, children, you all come over here and we're going to talk about this. He looks at the husband and says, (laughs) right here, husband, this is at your feet. It's the husband who answers to God. It's not the wife. And lastly, for wives, wives must submit to their husbands because marriage symbolizes Christ's relationship to the church. Paul says in verse 23 of Ephesians chapter 5, Again, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. In the same way the church submits to Christ, the wife is called to submit to her husband. From creation, God made marriage to model the present reality of Christ and the church. Christ's love for the church. We call this the great mystery. From the beginning of time, even before, God designed marriage to be a picture, a living illustration of Christ's love for the church. And it's, it's easy pretty much to understand what it means that the head, the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. But what does it mean here when it says, how is, you know, the man is the wife's savior? Christ is the head and Christ is the savior. The man, the husband, is also the head and the savior. Well, let me just put it this way. The husband is the wife's savior in the sense that he guards her, he protects her, he provides for her, he loves her, he cherishes her, even as Christ does his church. A Christian marriage, as Christ loves the church, is called of God to be a gospel message that evangelizes everyone around. Did you ever think that? Well, I'm not much of an evangelist. I can't go to door door, hand out tracts, you know. I, 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 you know, and we struggle with evangelism. You know, here Paul is saying that evangelism, in many regards, is because of our home and our marriage. People will see something of Christ and his church in our homes. As the husband sacrificially loves his wife like Christ, as, as she submits to him, like the church submits to Christ. It's, it's a union that is meant to model and glorify God. It teaches us that a Christian marriage is more about God and his glory than our own happiness. We're learning in the parenting season, season that the goal of parenting is not to make our kids happy or help them to be happy or successful, but to make them holy and obedient 
uh, to Jesus Christ. In the same way, our, our Christian marriages are more about God and His glory. So we should continually ask ourselves, are my actions reflecting God's forgiveness? Are they reflecting God's patience? Are they reflecting God's love? Am I honoring God through my actions? You know, and there's a sense we can't control the actions of our spouse, can we? But we can control how we respond to those actions through the Spirit of God. Lord, we're here to glorify you. My life is not about my happiness, but it's about your pleasure. Lord, help us be faithful reflections of you. And that brings us to the husbands. In my necessity this morning, this will be brief. What every man needs to know about being a spirit-filled husband. In a spirit-filled marriage, the husband loves his wife as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. It must be remembered here that the husband is given an impossible standard no one can love just like Christ love, not all the time. It means that, that no husband will ever be able to say, wow, I made it. <laughs> I am satisfied with the love that I showed to my wife. Because every one of us as husbands falls woefully short of this impossible standard. Husband, if you don't believe that, ask who. <laughs> you know. We must be continually filled with the Spirit of God to even begin to reach it. And we, we need to be filled with God's Spirit and complete, depend completely upon Him. And so first of all, we see here, <coughs> the husband's love must be realistic. Realistic love. No man should have no unrealistic fantasies or ideas about the woman that he married. Christ loved the church and died for the church when she was still a sinner and an enemy of God. Christ knew that the church, as it were, was sinful. She would be disobedient, but he still gave his life for her while knowing her faults. His love was realistic. And in marriage, both partners need to realize this reality. In fact, much of premarital counseling consists of destroying the false expectations that they've, they've set up about this, set up by romantic comedies and other Hollywood productions. You know, we joke about it in our house because every one of these romantic comedies has a guy named Jack who came from we don't know where, and it has a guy named Richard who's the current boyfriend or whatever, and, you know, and so we just call them Jack and Richard no matter which, which one we're, we're watching. It must be realistic. But even Hollywood starts to hit on it once in a while because remember the movie Titanic, whether you saw it or not? An R-rated movie, Titanic, but the average junior high girl, the average junior high girl who was not even old enough to get into the movie without permission of her parents, the average junior high girl saw that movie five times. And you go, why on earth? What were they looking for? Because they saw a guy named Jack and a woman named Rose, and Jack gave his life for her. So that is what girls, wives, are looking for. And so secondly, the husband's love must be sacrificial. The husband's love his wife as Christ loved the church, and thus be willing to die for her. And if anybody feels that the wife's role is unfair, they should give more thought to the role of the husband because I think it's probably a whole lot easier to submit to somebody than to give, somebody, give your life for that person. And of course, such love is impossible without the grace of God. 
To love sacrificially means that the husband at times will forgo his free time, his pet projects, his entertainment, even his friendships, and sometimes even his career to love his wife. You know, it's sad to see how many husbands, because of their careers, not even home to love their wives or their children. And then the husband's love must be sanctifying. Verse 5, or chapter 5, verse 26, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Christ's love makes the church holy by the cleansing of his word. His purpose is to present to himself a perfect bride. And similarly, the husband must help and encourage his wife. He must encourage her to learn scripture and encourage her to get involved in a Bible-believing church and in small groups and ministries where she can grow as a woman of God. He must help her cultivate not only her character, but also her calling so she can fulfill God's plan for her life. The husband must discern her gifts, her talents, and encourage her to use them for the glory of God. And this love also means at times admonishing his wife through the word that she might know and serve Christ better. It's a sanctifying love. Fourthly, the husband's love must be humble. We see that phrase, washing with water. That seems to picture the job of a servant. It may specifically reflect the washing of the disciples' feet by Jesus as he served them, the job of a slave, the lowest-ranking person in the house. Christ humbled himself and, and cleansed his disciples. This is also the job of the husband. Though he is the head, he does not use his position to dominate or command his wife, but to humbly serve her. And all the husbands now are kind of shrinking into their seats. Remember, we started, this is an impossible task. <laughs> we need the Holy Spirit in this. We must be men continually be concerned about the emotional, physical, social, and spiritual needs of our wives and work to meet them. The husband's love must be humble and serving. And lastly, the husband's love must be personal. He must love her as his own body. Verse 28. So husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. A man must love his wife as his own physical body, but really it's what it's saying here is part of himself. As Eve was part of Adam, taken out of his side, so the wife of the, is to the man part of, of him. And the husband must realize that the, the, man, the woman, the wife, is part of himself because he will not be knowing this instinctively. He has to be taught it. And really all the Bible and all its part teaches it. In other words, the husband must understand. The husband must understand that he and the wife are not two, but they are what? One. One. Now I know we're a little bit over the time, but I just want to summarize this and, and put it together by asking two questions asking two questions in application, one to the husband and one to the wife. When I do premarital counseling, I make sure, and even marital counseling, I make sure that uh, the couple understand the implications of these two questions that are drawn out of this text. 
They need to understand what these two questions mean and what the implications are. The command to husbands is to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. To sacrificially give his life. So the question for husbands is this. Husband, are you willing to die for your wife? And I don't mean as the macho thing. Of course, I'd throw myself in a truck, front of a truck to save her or do this or, or that or the other thing. No, I mean as a way of life, daily, consistently, constantly, are you willing to die for her? And that means to die to self, to die to your own desires, to die to your own dreams, your own pleasures for your wife. Are you willing to give up your life for her. And the command to wives is to submit to your husbands as to the Lord and to respect your husband. And so the, while the question is to the husband, husband, are you willing to die for your wife? The question to the wives is, wife, are you willing to live for your husband? Are you willing to live for your husband? Are you willing to live for his aspirations, his goals? Are you willing to live for the sense of worth that he needs in this world. Shall we pray? Well, seven minutes over. That's not too bad for me, I guess. <laughs> Shall we pray? Father, as we come to a conclusion, but really just a beginning on, on this important passage of, of Scripture, as we've looked at it for three weeks now, Lord, and I pray, Father, that we've laid the proper and scriptural foundation, because uh, next week we'll, we'll get into what it means to that the arrows, our children, are in the hands of a of a warrior, Lord, and we get more into the parenting aspects, Father, but uh, I pray for your blessing upon the husbands and wives in our church. I pray for the blessing of, of singles and the divorced, and, and Lord, because as we understand what certain relationships are to be, Father, we also come to understand what our own relationships are and, and what it means, Father. So, so I thank you for the blessing that uh, we have with with the children that are in our church, Father, and uh, as we move forward from here. And I give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.